Due to the graphic nature of this dictator's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Throughout human history, revolutions have completely transformed nations. They've been political and religious, peaceful and violent, good and bad. In every instance, they've reshaped the social order. But for a revolution to be successful, it needs someone to inspire the citizenry to overthrow their oppressors. These orators, writers, and armed guerrilla fighters often risk their lives for the cause. In other words, to have a revolution, you need revolutionaries. History books are filled with famous names who organized the people for rebellion. Sometimes, though, these revolutionaries were consumed by their cause. When men like Maximilien Robespierre, Che Guevara, and Leon Trotsky seized power, they stopped at nothing to destroy the revolution's enemies. But in doing so, they became the very tyrants they swore to vanquish. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season on Dictators, we're exploring the lives of famous revolutionaries. These men overthrew brutal and unjust regimes only to transform into ruthless oppressors themselves. Today, we begin our dive into the life of Maximilien Robespierre, one of the most influential voices of the French Revolution. We'll explore how Robespierre, a lawyer in the Age of Enlightenment, transformed into a radical revolutionary almost by accident. Next time, we'll examine how Robespierre became the most powerful man in France. Committed to his utopian ideals, Robespierre made sure nobody threatened the revolution by unleashing the reign of terror. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Until next time, sweet screams. In looking at Maximilien Robespierre, one wouldn't assume he was a revolutionary. He was short and had to wear two pairs of glasses because his eyes were so weak. He also wasn't very charismatic. He read his long-winded speeches without looking up at his audience. And he spoke slowly so he could be recorded in newspapers not to stir the hearts of his listeners. Yet this awkward, unimposing man became a giant of the French Revolution. In an age defined by enormous personalities, none loomed so large as Robespierre. He wasn't just a voice of the French Revolution. For many, he was the revolution. Maximilien Francois-Marie-Isidore de Robespierre was born on May 6, 1758, in the town of Arras, about 100 miles north of Paris. His father was a lawyer, and his mother was the daughter of a brewer. Intriguingly, their marriage came from unusual circumstances for the 18th century. They married just four months before Maximilian was born. Thus, Robespierre was something of a scandal even before he came into this world. As a boy, Robespierre was loud and rambunctious. But all that changed when his mother suddenly died when he was just six years old. After his mother passed, Robespierre and his brother Augustin went to live with their grandparents at the family brewery. It's unclear if he ever saw his father again. The loss of both parents transformed the young boy. He abandoned youthful games and took a deep interest in his studies. He knew he needed to be successful. After all, he had family he needed to look after. Robespierre became a serious and hardworking student, and his dedication quickly paid off. When he was 11, Robespierre won a scholarship at the illustrious College of Louis-le-Grand in Paris. He left the only world he'd ever known, the small town of Arras, and moved to one of the largest cities in Europe. Ironically, Robespierre saw very little of Paris itself. He was rarely allowed to leave the grounds of the Louis-le-Grand, Instead, he devoted himself to his work as always. One classmate even said he thought of nothing but his studies. He neglected everything for his studies. His studies were his god. Like most other educated boys of his era, Robespierre brushed up on Greek and Roman classics. He seemed to particularly enjoy studying the late Roman Republic, a time of great upheaval, political violence, and high ideals about liberty and citizenship. Two of the most important figures to Robespierre of this period were Cato the Elder and Cicero. From Cato, Robespierre learned to be uncompromising in his virtues, while Cicero imparted lessons in rhetoric and political thought. In fact, one story in particular from the era seemed to deeply impact the young Robespierre. In 63 BCE, a disgruntled aristocrat named Catiline plotted to overthrow the Roman government. Cicero, then one of the elected leaders of Rome, ruthlessly crushed the coup and called for his death without a trial. Cicero justified his extreme actions to the Senate by insisting, 
The only plots against us are within our own walls. The danger is within. The enemy is within. For this war, O oh citizens, I offer myself as the general. Unquestionably, these lessons profoundly shaped Robespierre's worldview. To always be virtuous, but also fear the enemy lurking in the shadows. Cicero had made his fame and fortune as a lawyer, so Robespierre also chose to study law. Of course, it was also one of the most lucrative and prestigious paths a middle-class Frenchman could take in life. As a 20-year-old student, Robespierre finally emerged from the sheltered life at Louis Le Grand and embraced life in Paris. The timing couldn't have been more exciting for the intellectual Robespierre. It was the Age of Enlightenment. Paris was overrun with heated debates about morality, authority, and liberty. Numerous literary societies and political clubs throughout Paris allowed members to practice rhetoric and expound their liberal ideals. People often exchanged books and pamphlets of notorious repute. These included everything from the philosophies of Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Francis Bacon to the pornographic stories of the Marquis de Sade. Nothing was off-limits. But some were seen as highly dangerous by the elites. Enlightenment thinking exposed the hypocritical, immoral, and scandalous behavior of European society, especially the powerful nobility and the Catholic Church. Since the Middle Ages, French society was divided into three estates, the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners. And at the top of all of that was the crown, who ruled as an absolute monarch. Collectively, this was known as the Ancien Régime. The first two estates, the clergy and nobility, were supposed to be the pillars of society. However, idealistic, educated young students like Robespierre only saw them as corrupt. They wondered if perhaps it was possible to create a different form of society, a more equal one. Brimming with these thoughts, Robespierre left college in July 1781. He returned to his hometown of Arras and began practicing law. Less than a year later, he was selected to fill a vacancy in the Episcopal Court, effectively becoming a judge. It's unclear exactly how the young and inexperienced Robespierre was chosen to become a judge. However, historian David Jordan suggests he may have had some influence with the Bishop of Arras. No matter how he was chosen, Robespierre now decided the fates of men, including cases involving capital punishment. When Robespierre was 24, he presided over a case in which a man was found guilty of murder. Ultimately, Robespierre sentenced the man to death, but the judgment weighed heavily on his conscience. It was likely the first time his idealistic beliefs clashed with the ugliness of the real world. As his sister noted, Robespierre was so distraught, he didn't eat for two days. He paced his home constantly, remarking over and over, I know that he's a scoundrel, but to have a man killed. Over the next several months, Robespierre continued to practice as a lawyer around town and earned himself a solid reputation. Though he was not very successful financially, he won the majority of his cases. However, in 1783, his status rose substantially. 
With the help of a friend, Robespierre got the opportunity to defend another lawyer named Visserie de Bois-Vallet. Apart from his law career, Bois-Vallet was also an amateur scientist who had constructed a large lightning conductor on his house. However, his neighbors hated the apparatus and won a court order to have it removed. Thanks to Robespierre's defense, the order was overturned. As he put it, the case was a major win for scientific ideals against ignorance. An account of Robespierre's victory ran in a national newspaper, greatly enhancing his prestige and self-confidence. He even mailed a copy of his court speech to another well-known scientist, Benjamin Franklin. Thanks to the Bois-Vallet case, the Royal Academy of Arras invited Robespierre to join in November 1783, effectively ushering him into the upper echelons of Arras society. He used his new status to expound on his ideals, especially when it came to living a virtuous life. As Robespierre made his voice heard, he often attacked whole institutions like the Catholic Church. In 1783, for example, Robespierre defended a shoemaker accused of stealing from a monk. The shoemaker claimed the holy man was only seeking revenge because the shoemaker's sister refused his sexual advances. Robespierre won the case, and during his defense, he claimed the monk's entire abbey abused their power. Besides attacking corrupt monks, Robespierre defended France's marginalized and downtrodden. Likely influenced by his own family history, he loudly demanded that children born out of wedlock should receive the same legal benefits as other children. He also advocated that literary societies should be open to women. He insisted they were equally capable of contributing to society, which was considered a radical idea in 18th century Europe. But although he called for societal reform, at no point during his rise to fame did he consider actually engaging in revolution. His visions for a virtuous French society sounded more like a daydream, better suited as the subjects of essays or coffeehouse conversations. As the 1780s continued on, he undoubtedly looked forward to a modest life of public service, quietly taking on local injustices. He was just another liberal thinker who talked, but didn't act. But France was on a collision course with a revolution that would completely upend society. And Robespierre would soon find himself in the eye of that bloody storm. Coming up, Robespierre joins the struggle to save France. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. By the mid-1780s, Maximilien Robespierre was a leading figure in the French town of Arras. His success in the courtroom afforded him a position in the region's upper echelons. He used that status to lament the corruption and hypocrisy of the privileged classes. However, by 1787, he likely accepted that his vision for a virtuous society would only come through slow change, if at all. But he didn't realize a brewing national crisis was about to thrust him into the spotlight, completely altering the course of his life and all of human history. By the late 18th century, France was a powder keg ready to explode. The country had fought three global wars in less than a hundred years. Their most recent conflict was supporting the rebellious American colonies against Britain in 1778. The wars put a heavy strain on the French economy. But joining the American cause a decade earlier had finally threatened to bankrupt France. If the nation wanted to avoid disaster, it needed to make radical changes. Ironically, it was the conservative and reactionary King Louis XVI who incited reform. Technically, Louis ruled as an absolute monarch. His power was unrestricted by a constitution. In reality, though, he relied on various power brokers and ministers when it came to serious governmental changes. The most pressing issue was new taxes. Without more taxes, the kingdom couldn't pay off its debts. But the nobility vehemently resisted any effort by the crown to tax them. They flexed their muscle in the appellate courts of France, called Parlement. To force through reforms, Louis tried to dissolve the Parlement. Everyone agreed change was necessary, but many, including Robespierre, interpreted the move as an attack on personal liberty. The Parlement were one of the few checks on the king's power. But no sooner had Louis moved against the Parlement than the crisis worsened. In July 1788, a massive hailstorm in northern France destroyed much of that year's grain harvest. High bread prices and famine loomed on the horizon. Realizing he needed to take a more drastic approach, King Louis called a meeting of the Estates General, the first time they had gathered since 1614. The Estates General was an advisory body made up of representatives of the three estates, the clergy, the nobility, and the commoners. The fact that the king was convening the Estates General for the first time in 174 years showed just how desperate the situation had become. While this seemed like a perfect chance for the commoners to let their voices be heard, Robespierre knew that reality was different. 
During the last meeting in 1614, the clergy and nobility voted on issues before the commoners. In doing so, they easily silenced the commoners, despite the fact that they were 98% of the population. It was as if 2% of the population had 75% of the nation's voting power. Robespierre was livid at the thought that this new estates general would be a repeat. Despite being well-educated in the law and the ideals of science and humanism, he and his middle-class contemporaries were still treated like rabble. To fight the power of the upper classes, Robespierre published a pamphlet advocating for a more equitable configuration of the estates general. He even had the radical idea that those without property should also be allowed to vote, which would even allow himself to be a representative at the meeting. The calling of the Estates General unlocked Robespierre's ambition. Previously, he'd been content to theorize on the public good. But now there was a chance to put theory into practice. He might even become as renowned as his heroes, Cato and Cicero. Fortunately for Robespierre, King Louis agreed to double the size of the Third Estate's representation. It was a major win for the commoners. Thrilled about the new development, Robespierre threw his hat into the local elections. And he won. He became one of the eight representatives from his province for the Third Estate, and he was soon on his way to Versailles to fight for the nation's future. Two days before his 32nd birthday, Robespierre arrived at the Palace of Versailles in early May 1789. It was quite an exhilarating sight. Over 1,100 delegates were there, each bringing possible solutions to change France's fate. Not one to be intimidated, Robespierre immediately joined an association of radical deputies called the Breton Club. The club's objectives were to secure a favorable voting method, eliminate the clergy and nobility's tax exemptions, and expand their own numbers. Robespierre quickly stood out among the club's membership. Though he lacked charisma or charm, his intelligent, biting speeches against the other estates raised his profile among his peers. Meanwhile, tensions in the estates general were high. Because King Louis expanded the third estate representation, they were now the majority. However, the clergy and the nobles wanted to prevent the commoners from wielding any true power. They demanded the old protocols remain to let them vote first. But the third estate delegates refused to back down. Robespierre and the others knew that they represented the true will of the people, and they weren't going to be bullied by the elites. So, on June 17th, the third estate rechristened itself as the National Assembly and proclaimed that it would be the country's legislature. Naturally, the old order wasn't too fond of the new assembly's bid for power. A few days later, on June 20th, Robespierre and the other deputies arrived at the Salle des Menus Plaisir, ready to get down to business. However, they discovered the doors were locked. Taking this as a sign of hostility, Robespierre and the others convened to a nearby tennis court. They swore that the National Assembly would not dissolve until they had a constitution for France. This became known as the Tennis Court Oath. King Louis responded in his typical wavering fashion. 
While he begrudgingly permitted the National Assembly to meet, he simultaneously fortified nearby Paris with thousands of foreign mercenaries. Despite the not-so-subtle show of force, Parisians saw the nascent National Assembly as their champion. Thus, Louis' decision to send in the troops appeared to be a threat to their liberty. Louis failed to realize that flooding Paris with soldiers only brought the powder keg closer to explosion. And a few weeks later, it finally went off. On July 14, 1789, amid these rising tensions, Parisians took to the streets in anger, which soon erupted into open insurrection. Hungry and desperate, the furious Parisians stormed the Bastille, a political prison and an arms depot. Above all, it was a hated symbol of the arbitrary authority of the king. Seizing the Bastille was a watershed moment. To Robespierre, it meant that the revolution had begun. He described the event to a friend as one of the greatest events in human history. Three days after the insurrection, Louis traveled to Paris and accepted a knot of ribbons called a cockade. This knot symbolized both the revolution and the royal dynasty merged together. To many, it seemed as if the king had given up on an absolute monarchy. Robespierre was thrilled. The people, bursting with patriotic fervor, made their voice heard, and the king listened. The French were finally winning their liberty. And to Robespierre, if it came at the cost of a few deaths, so be it. He told a fellow deputy, What has happened in this riot in Paris? A few heads chopped off, of course, but they were the heads of guilty people. Robespierre accepted that the revolution would be inherently violent, even after the king's concessions. And sporadic violence did continue throughout Paris in the days that followed. However, Robespierre knew that the success of the revolution wasn't guaranteed. He hoped to co-opt the moment and eventually make such violent outbursts unnecessary. If the people felt the National Assembly protected their interests and punished their enemies, then they would no longer seek vigilante justice. To that end, Robespierre supported a motion to create a citizen's militia, the National Guard. The National Guard was the physical defense of the revolution. However, its principles needed to be defended as well. To articulate and safeguard their new liberty from counter-revolution, the Assembly adopted a charter called the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. The Declaration was a 17-point manifesto on European liberalism. It was like an exact summary of what the Age of Enlightenment sought to build. It championed basic human rights, equality, and individual liberty. Above all, it called for rule by popular sovereignty, not divine right. Thus, the document was a slap in the face to the French monarchy, since they believed God gave them the power to rule. King Louis rejected the declaration outright. Even though the revolutionaries weren't calling for Louis' abdication, the king was still determined to maintain his old authority and independence. Unfortunately for Louis, the women of Paris had a message they wanted to send to the king personally. 
On October 5, 1789, Parisian women went to the markets and discovered outrageous prices for bread. Worse, there was a massive shortage. So the women decided to give Louis an earful. Roughly 7,000 women, later joined by men, marched from Paris to Versailles. As it just so happened, they arrived as Robespierre was addressing the assembly. Robespierre stopped speaking and listened to a delegation of women. After hearing their grievances, he called for an investigation into the food shortages. The incident raised Robespierre's profile and established his reputation as a true champion of the poor. Afterward, the crowd of women marched to the king's palace. They demanded that he return to Paris. This way, the people could better keep an eye on him. Fearing for his life as he gazed upon the angry mob surrounding his palace, Louis agreed. In solidarity, the assembly joined the king and moved to Paris as well. Though Louis hadn't officially abdicated by agreeing to go to Paris, he had essentially abandoned the notion of being absolute in his authority. As he journeyed back to Paris, Robespierre knew that there was still plenty of work that needed to be done, like writing a constitution. Still, he believed that success was nigh, which meant his time as a revolutionary was nearing its end. But he was wrong. Counter-revolutionary plots were echoing through the streets of Paris, and once again, Robespierre would be at the forefront of the impending conflict. Coming up, Robespierre becomes one of the dominant voices of the revolution. Now back to the story. On October 5th, 1789, thousands of Parisian women marched on Versailles and forced King Louis XVI to permanently move to Paris. Born out of anger over high bread prices, the movement was an unprecedented expression of popular power and ended all pretense of absolute monarchy. One of the most eager revolutionaries to pounce on this new phase was 32-year-old Maximilien Robespierre. He knew the citizenry had been given an opportunity to finally transform France. He wasn't going to waste it. Robespierre finally had the chance to put his ideals into practice. Over the next several months, he dove deeper into efforts to reshape French society with varying degrees of success. Robespierre again called for allowing all men to vote, even those who didn't own property. Unfortunately, not everyone in the assembly agreed with him and adopted property ownership as a qualification to vote. Despite the setback, Robespierre simply moved to the next item on his agenda, seigneurial dues. These were the labor and taxes French commoners had historically owed to their local nobility, like a remnant of feudalism. The seigneurial dues system was abolished, and no new dues were enacted. However, peasants who owed money were still required to pay off their debts. But many did not. And some even ransacked and burned the homes of the privileged. Unsurprisingly, Robespierre took the side of the oppressed peasantry and waved off instances of violence or made no attempts to stop them. However, the poor caused more destruction than just burning down a few homes. 
For centuries, French aristocrats had restricted access to the country's forests, using them as private hunting parks. However, once the revolution was in full swing, the starving peasants cut down the forests to create more farmland. Robespierre defended their actions, and he also supported the peasants using the forests to hunt game for sport, which was a tradition previously available only to the nobility. Many of Robespierre's fellow deputies despised the peasants killing animals en masse and were infuriated by his support. But Robespierre didn't care what the others thought. He refused to compromise on his beliefs, even when it was politically expedient to do so. But the assembly faced an even bigger crisis than agitated peasants. France was still in a financial crisis. Emboldened by their newly won liberty, the people resisted efforts to collect taxes. But the state had to get money from somewhere. So the assembly decided to seize church property and sell it off at auction. Since Robespierre believed the clergy actively oppressed the poor, he enthusiastically approved the decision. The sale of church lands created a new mess of problems. When the clergy opposed the move, the assembly responded by passing a civil constitution of the clergy. The document called for the election of clergymen, which undermined the Catholic Church's insistence that its authority was derived directly from God. As if that wasn't enough, the assembly tried to enforce a loyalty oath on French clergy, and the vast majority refused. The attacks on the church did more harm than good. The economic crisis wasn't solved because church lands were sold at a fraction of what they were worth. In fact, this actually eroded enthusiasm for the revolution. Throughout 1790, divisions within French society grew deeper. Outspoken anti-clerical revolutionaries like Robespierre appeared more and more like figureheads of the revolution's destructive excess. By now, Robespierre was one of the Assembly's most radical members and showed no signs of tempering his beliefs. This was especially true when he became the face of a new political club, commonly known as the Jacobins. When the Assembly moved to Paris, the Breton Club faded away. Its remnants eventually became the Jacobins and Robespierre's second home. Like Robespierre, only those truly committed to the revolution were accepted as members. High dues discouraged the hesitant, while any member who failed to show the appropriate level of zeal could be kicked out. Steadily, the Jacobins' dedication toward the revolution made them one of the most popular political clubs in Paris. Robespierre, with his gift for political rhetoric, played a major part in their rise. One of his favorite topics to rally his supporters was any conspiracy aimed at destroying the revolution. And his fears weren't completely unfounded. There were legitimate threats to the cause. As the assembly seized more power, many members of the nobility and clergy fled France, with some plotting to overthrow the new revolutionary government. Louis' younger brother, Charles, left France with the intention of raising a small army and invading. The specter of counter-revolution always loomed in the back of Robespierre's mind, and he wanted to crush it. However, he didn't call for the revolution's enemies to be killed without mercy. 
In fact, in May 1791, Robespierre advocated for the abolition of the death penalty, perhaps owing to the time he sentenced a man to death as a judge. Unfortunately, the motion failed. In fact, the assembly went the opposite way and accepted a proposal to use a single method for executions, the guillotine. One month after Robespierre's failed death penalty proposal, King Louis XVI and his wife, Queen Marie Antoinette, attempted to flee France. They made it as far as the small town of Varennes before they were recognized and arrested. The attempted royal flight sent shockwaves throughout the country. For Robespierre, it confirmed that there was indeed a vast conspiracy to destroy the revolution, and the king was its leader. He needed to cut off the conspiracy at the head. On July 14th, Robespierre proclaimed to the assembly that Louis should be removed from the throne and put on trial. He wasn't the only one who demanded this. Three days later, a political club called the Cordeliers organized a protest calling for Louis' abdication. The National Guard violently dispersed them, killing about 50 protesters. Whether or not he realized it, by advocating for the king's removal, Robespierre had crossed a line. The majority of the assembly were committed to maintaining a constitutional monarchy. They'd keep the king, but limit his powers. Within Robespierre's Jacobin Club, the abdication issue was divisive. 260 members left and formed their own club called the Fouillons. This left Robespierre with less than 30 Jacobin deputies on his side. Robespierre's call for abdication suddenly made him a pariah within the assembly. But he refused to waver, and before long, he was the leading advocate for France to become a republic. Robespierre looked for a new network of support. Luckily for him, it didn't take him too long to find it with the sans-culottes. Literally meaning, without britches, the sans-culottes were militant, working-class Parisians. They agitated for true democracy, and to them, that meant universal suffrage for men. This was what Robespierre had always demanded, too. And by August 1791, thanks to a series of speeches which attacked wealth inequality, Robespierre emerged as the champion of the sans-culottes. Owing to this popularity, the Jacobins' numbers quickly rebounded. Within a few months, they grew to nearly 800 members. Robespierre was their voice, and in their eyes, the truest revolutionary of them all. Ironically, finding that new base of support may have been unnecessary. On September 30, 1791, the Assembly fulfilled its tennis court oath and adopted a constitution. It created the Legislative Assembly and officially became the governing body in France. Since King Louis was under arrest and most of the nobles had fled the country, there was no one to defend the Ancien Regime. It seemed the revolution was over. The people had won. During the constitutional process, Robespierre advanced a proposal in which nobody who had served in the National Assembly would be allowed to stand for the first legislative assembly. So, with his time in the revolutionary government apparently finished, Robespierre went home. Like the great Roman dictators he read about as a boy, 
Once a crisis was over, power transferred back to the Republic. As such, Robespierre set aside his authority and returned to a more humble life. When he reached Arras in October, a regiment of the National Guards welcomed him with a wreath. And as he traveled about the Artois province, crowds cheered him on as a hero. He'd helped overthrow the king and removed harsh taxes, a true champion of liberty. For years, Robespierre had pondered how to create a fully virtuous, equitable society. Seeing the effects of the revolution throughout the region, he might have even been convinced that such a utopia was possible. But not everyone was happy to see him. Local officials, mostly the elites, gave him a cold shoulder. So did those who had lost their jobs thanks to the nationalization of church property. This resentment from the pious confused Robespierre. He couldn't fathom the religious fervor still alive in the countryside. He sarcastically remarked, I do not propose to remain for long in this holy land. I am not worthy of it. Yet, as Robespierre toured the Artois province, basking in the adulation of grateful citizens, he felt Paris tugging on his mind. For him, the revolution was impossible to ignore. He also couldn't ignore his desire to protect it. As more and more nobles fled France, Robespierre was convinced that a counter-revolutionary army headed by King Louis's brother Charles lurked along the borders, waiting to strike. Adding to those fears were the royalist grumbles he heard throughout parts of the Artois province. Like Cicero during the Catiline Conspiracy, Robespierre knew that there were enemies everywhere. He could see the clouds of war beginning to form, and he knew he was going to have to be the one to ruthlessly squash the inevitable counter-revolution. Even if it meant sending France into a reign of terror. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next time, we'll explore Robespierre's rise to the heights of revolutionary power and his bloody struggle to create a virtuous society at any cost. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Joe Guerra and Andrew Messer, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Kotovich. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner.